You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Benedict Ashley. I am a professor of moral theology at Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, Missouri. This lecture begins a series of lectures on the subject of the Bible as the basis of moral theology. You know, sometimes people today ask the question to themselves, where is God? I don't see him, I don't hear him, I don't feel him. They think that God is silent. And yet, we Christians know that our God is someone who has revealed himself to us. He is not a remote God. He's not a silent God. He has made himself known. He is known to us not only through the wonders of creation and the wonders of our own body and our own mind, but especially because he has come to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And he has sent his Holy Spirit on the church so that Christ, although invisible, lives in the church and speaks in the church. God has revealed himself to us. The study of theology is a study of that God who reveals himself. Who he is, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, that he is the creator and the redeemer, that he has sent his Son to be with us. And we call that part of theology by a name which is not too attractive, really, dogmatic theology. Dogma, in this case, simply means doctrine, teaching. It's the part of theology that meditates on who God is as he has made himself known to us. It's the more important part of theology because God is the most important thing there is. But there's another aspect of theology that, while it's not as important as dogmatic theology, is nevertheless essential. And we call that moral theology. The reason we have this kind of theology is because once a God has made himself known to us, we have to respond to God. We have to respond to God in a way that is honest, sincere, and appropriate. That is not just a response in words, it's a response in our life and in our love for him and our understanding of him. And that's what moral theology is about. It's about our response to the God who has made himself known to us as a loving God. 
It's a very difficult subject and is always full of a lot of controversies because it's not easy to understand our path to God. We meet all kinds of obstacles, all sorts of temptations, different forks in the road, and we really wonder many times whether we are on the right track or not. Consequently, God himself has to give us some guidance. He is the goal that we are seeking. He is the one who is inviting us forward, and we need his help in finding the path to him because there are so many possible missteps that we might take. And so how do we learn about the path to God? That is what moral theology is trying to meditate on, trying to formulate and make clear, try to teach not only to the future priest, but to the laity as well. And of course, theology comes even down to the child in the form of the catechism. God wants to show us the way to him. And that's what moral theology is about. There's always been a teaching of moral theology in the church. But sometimes, because it is a difficult subject and because there are lots of controversies about it, this teaching has not always been done as well as it should be. You know that on the one hand, some of our older Catholics will tell you that they came away from catechism or from the sermon or from their course in religion thinking that the Christian religion is a lot of rules. Rules that make life more difficult. And you probably have heard from our, some of our younger people that the way they were instructed in morals was not so much rules, but it was a lot of talk about value clarification, about what they thought was right and wrong in life, and about personal relationships, and about psychology. But they were not told very much about what God has said for our guidance. That is why in Vatican II, as a part of the renewal of the church, the bishops and our Holy Father decided to put into the documents of Vatican II the recommendation that there be a renewal of the teaching of moral theology. They set a big task for the moral theologian. And the way they recommended to renew the teaching of moral theology was that we return to the sources. Our tradition in moral teaching is very rich. It covers all aspects of life. It's full of a profound wisdom 
the result of centuries of experience and thought. And we've lost a good deal of that. We've forgotten a lot of it. And of course, there are new things to be added from our modern experience. To renew moral theology then, we have to go back and connect it with its roots. And what are the roots? The root of guidance, the root of our understanding of what God asks of us is the Holy Scripture, the Bible. And you know, Catholics are often put off from the Bible a bit because in past times, our brethren, the Protestants, made so much of the Bible, a lot of Catholics got the idea that it wasn't very Catholic to be a student of the Bible. Vatican II corrected that. All of our religious life must be based on the Word of God, which is found in the sacred scriptures. And that goes for moral theology too. It must be rooted in the Word of God as we find it in the sacred scriptures. As I open my Bible here, come to Psalm 119, and it expresses the attitude that we need to have in opening the Bible to find out what God has said to us. It says this to God, lead me from the way of deceit. Favor me with your teaching. The way of loyalty I have chosen, I have set your edicts before me. I cling to your decrees, Lord. Do not let me come to shame. I will run the way of your commands, for you open my docile heart. Lord, teach me the way of your laws. I shall observe them with care. Give me insight to observe your teaching, to keep it with all my heart. And so that is the attitude that we need as we open the Bible and ask ourselves. What do we find here that tells me how to live my life in a way that will enable me to reach my eternal goal so that eventually I will come to live with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and with all those who love God in the kingdom of God? However, there are difficulties really serious difficulties in looking in the scriptures and trying to understand what it says. And difficulties about constructing a moral theology that is biblically based. There are two that I want to speak of in this lecture. The first one is that modern biblical scholarship, which has developed marvelously in our time, which has been able to use all of the resources of archaeology, the knowledge of the ancient languages, the knowledge of ancient history, to reconstruct the way the Bible came about, the situations in which the different books were written, the personalities and the attitudes of the different authors. That biblical scholarship, which ought to be helping us sometimes stands rather in the way. 
Now, in saying this, I don't want to seem to blame the biblical scholars. I think what has happened is inevitable. But nevertheless, it's a fact that sometimes when we get through reading a book of modern biblical scholarship, all we have before us is a lot of discussion about where the books came from, the difficulties about the transmission of the biblical text, the historical situation in which the work was written, but where is the Word of God? That's what makes the Bible different than any other book. That's what is important to us in our life and our faith, is what is God saying to us? And that often is obscured rather than made clear by biblical scholarship. It's covered over with details and controversies about things which perhaps we never will be able to settle, and the message gets lost. So that's one of the difficulties. And in the case of moral teaching, it particularly means this, that many moral theologians will tell you, well, when I look at the Bible and try to find in it material for the teaching of moral theology, I find it's so distant from the problems of today. It happens that my field of specialty is medical ethics. And of course, in medical ethics, we have all kinds of new problems that come up from transplantations to various forms of contraception, the problem of abortion or euthanasia, assisted suicide, these things that are made so pertinent and relevant at the present moment are hardly mentioned in the Scriptures. And what is mentioned in the Scriptures seems so tied up with the ancient situation, the kind of culture they had and the way they lived, that it seems remote from the things that concern us and the decisions we have to make. And so these theologians tend to say, well, the biblical teaching in the Old Testament, of course, that has been made obsolete by the teaching of Jesus Christ. And the teaching in the New Testament is 2,000 years old. And it's hardly relevant to us anymore except in sort of broad generalities. It certainly tells us, love our neighbor, don't hate your enemy, but it can never come down to something that is concrete and applicable to our situation. So that's one of the problems I want to talk about. Second problem is the fact that it's not only the generality of the truths, moral truths that we seem to get from the Scripture, but also that when we find what is permanent in Scripture, it doesn't seem to be specifically Christian. After all, the Buddhists believe in being honest, caring for your neighbor, not committing adultery. The Muslims believe the same. The Jews believe the same. It's a common 
morality of the whole world. And it's what we call the natural law. So the Bible doesn't seem to add anything to that. Natural law is accessible to human reason. We figure it out on the basis of our experience, the facts of life, what is good and what is bad for us and for society. So why do we need revelation? Why do we need the Bible if the Bible is so difficult to interpret anyway and to bring down to modern times? So those are the two difficulties we have to face. Now let's look at the first of those, the question of historical conditioning. If we look at the Bible itself, we see that this was a problem even in New Testament times. The Old Testament had been around for a very long time when Jesus came on the scene. The Jewish people had moved from the state of being nomads to settling down as an agricultural people, then developing urban life, and then finally being a part of the world picture after they were conquered by the Greeks and the Romans. They had undergone all kinds of social changes. And still, the traditions by which they lived were not that changing. So Jesus knew well enough, even in his human understanding, that the circumstances of life change, and it is not so easy to separate permanent moral principles from the changing circumstances. Furthermore, he intended to bring forward his own teaching. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the most important piece of moral teaching in the whole Bible, we find that that is touched on by Jesus very early in the sermon. He knows well enough that the Jewish people who were listening to him are going to say, well, you're saying some things we never heard before. And so he makes this point clear. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. He's saying then to the Jewish people, don't worry, I'm going to say some things to you that seem very novel. But nevertheless, the law of God given to you through Moses on Mount Sinai is still true. And it will hold forever till heaven and earth pass away, till the last judgment comes. There are permanent moral principles which will not change. There are permanent rules of conduct which will always be the same, and they will always be the same for two good reasons. One is that as long as they're human beings, they will be human. 
They will have the same basic needs as the people of the past. And the other reason is that we're all moving toward the same goal, the goal of eternal life with God. And that goal is fixed for every human being who's ever come into the world, and we will all be together in the end if we attain that goal. So there is something permanent about morality that does not change amidst all the changes of society which undoubtedly do take place. So we have clearly then in the Bible that we should not think that because times change and new problems come up and we're not quite the same as the generation before us, that there is not some permanent teaching that abides forever, that we need to know and to live by and to teach our children because it is permanent truth. Now, in saying that, we have to avoid two mistakes. Very recently, a document has come out from the Pontifical Biblical Commission, a very important document approved by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. And it's instruction on how to interpret the Bible. And it explains all of the different methods of modern biblical scholarship. It approves them, but it points out their limitations. And so we have, to, if we are respectful of the teaching of the church, we will be respectful of modern biblical scholarship. The church has approved it. The church encourages it. But at the same time, the church points out its limitations. Now, one thing that is said in this document is that we must not read the Bible as the fundamentalists read it. Fundamentalism tries to take up the Bible and to read it as if it were this, our daily newspaper. It reads it through the eyes of contemporary, our contemporary situation. It doesn't allow for the changes that have taken place since the Bible was written. It doesn't allow for the different ways in which the truth of God is expressed. For example, Jesus told parables. Now, we would miss the point of the parable if we were to read the parable as if it were a historical account or a piece in the daily newspaper. It, the parable is a fiction, a made-up story in order to make a moral point. And it has to be read that way. When we read it that way, we get what Jesus meant. When we read it in a fundamentalist way, we're missing his point. We don't get the word of God. And so we're warned then in the matter of moral teaching also. We can't just pick up the Bible and find a sentence that says do or do not and to take that as the rule of our life. We have to take every sentence in the Bible in the context of the whole Scripture and with a proper understanding 
given us by biblical scholarship of the different literary forms and ways of expression in which this is put. The other possible mistake is to do what I've been speaking against, namely to say, well, if we can't take everything in the Bible in an absolutely literal way, then it really doesn't say very much to us. It only makes general statements. That isn't true either. There are many things that are said in the moral instruction in the Scripture which are very definite and concrete. Jesus tells us, for example, general things like don't hate your enemy, but he also tells us concrete things like take care of your parents and don't find excuses for it. He tells us that adultery is wrong, that fornication is wrong, that stealing is wrong. These things are wrong and they're very definite and concrete and they will always be true. So there are two errors that we must avoid. Simply picking up the Bible and reading it in too literal a way without a consideration of the context and the literary style in which it is expressed. And the other one is to explain the Bible away as if it said nothing that is pertinent to us today. In fact, it remains a good and solid teacher. So that is the first of our difficulties that we need to deal with. We need to read the Bible with an appreciation of its historical character, and yet we need to look for in it for the permanent Word of God. When we do that, we find that the Bible is a life-giving source. There are many things in it that we can pick up and read on our own. We don't even need a commentary on. I suggest you reread again the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew chapters 5 to 6 and 7, and you will see that while there's some puzzling things in the Sermon on the Mount, things you wonder, well, what does that really mean? How would I apply that in daily life? There are other things that are quite concrete and that we all understand. And that's the way with the whole Bible, even with the Old Testament. We'll see later that the Old Testament has to be read in the light of the New Testament. But nevertheless, the Ten Commandments remain a guide for our life. And when you go to confession, you certainly can go through the Ten Commandments, and you can see in those Ten Commandments those things that, first of all, you must think about. It's not enough simply to go through the commandments, but they're solid beginning. They show us the basic rights of our neighbor, the rights of God that we must respect. The second difficulty that I mentioned that we need to think about is whether or not there's anything specific about Christian morals. It's very true that much in the Bible is simply the natural law. That anybody could figure out who had lived through life 
had the experience of time and maturity and could see by just using their head. We can all see that if we lie to each other, pretty soon nobody's going to trust us. And if we don't have trust in human society, if we don't pay our debts and live up to our contracts, society just won't work. That's what we call the natural law. And that isn't anything specific to Christians. People the world over have found that out. Go to China, you find people who understand honesty just as well as we do. And in our own country, which is so pluralistic, where there are many different faiths and different cultures, nevertheless, we agree on a lot of things. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to live together. And when we look at the Bible and we look at its teaching, if we look at the Old Testament, we see the heart of the Old Testament are the Ten Commandments. And most of the Ten Commandments, at least, are things that anybody knows. We didn't need God's Word to tell us about those things. We can figure them out ourselves. So why do we need revelation? A number of modern moral theologians have studied this issue and have come up with the conclusion there is nothing specifically Christian about Christian morality, except perhaps motivation. They say that the New Testament, as regards moral teaching, should be regarded as paranasis. The word, Greek word paranasis means exhortation or encouragement, persuasion. The, the, they, they would argue that we read the New Testament in order to get motivation for doing what is right or wrong, but not to decide what is right or wrong. That we have to figure out by our reason, making use of all of modern knowledge, modern medicine, modern psychology, modern sociology. So in that view then, we read the scriptures, let's say at Mass on Sunday, as a kind of what we used to call a fervorino, something to stir us up and motivate us. But it's not going to tell us something that we couldn't have figured out ourselves. And so they say there is no Christian morality that is specifically Christian. And they draw the conclusion from that then that moral theology, while we have to read the Bible in order to learn about that God is a trinity or to learn that the Son of God became man, moral theology does not require the Bible in that way. Rather, we figure out what is right and wrong by the use of ethics not theology, but ethics, something based on human reason. Now, what are we to say to that? There's a lot of truth in it. There, there's a lot of truth in this idea. 
because St. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, said that the Ten Commandments are simply the natural law. At least all of them except the Sabbath commandment are simply natural law. They're not something that requires revelation. There must be some other answer than this. It can't be that moral theology is just ethics. If so, if it were, it would not be theology. Nor would we have guidance from God about our life as we actually have to live it. We don't live our life simply as creatures of God. We live our life as creatures of God called to live in the Trinity. Our goal is far higher than we could ever imagine simply from our own experience. God himself has to invite us to that, or we wouldn't know that it was possible for us. And so the fact that Christianity and the Bible, Revelation, show us that our goal is higher than we can learn from our reason affects every single decision we make. It may not affect it a great deal. It may be that your decision to have a vanilla ice cream cone rather than a chocolate one, it's a decision all right, and you may make it just the way you, anybody else would, without a thought of God. But that decision is part of your life. It fits into the fabric of your living. And although the influence may be very slight, it's very real. We notice that when we're under temptation. When a temptation comes and we say, well, if I do that, I would like to do it, but if I do it, it would be a sin, and I might separate myself from God. At that moment, we realize that because we are Christian, our goal is always active in our life, and it keeps us from doing certain things that we might do otherwise, and it leads us to do certain things because we see things in the light of Christ and the light of our ultimate goal. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. That means that Jesus alone knew God the Father perfectly. And God the Father is the goal of our life. And only Jesus can tell us who God the Father really is. And so only Jesus can tell us how to make the practical decisions of our daily life in such a way that we keep moving toward God 
and not towards something else. And so to say that all that the New Testament does is to motivate us really doesn't make sense unless that motivation also comes down to practical, everyday, particular decisions. Decisions to avoid a certain temptation. Decisions to do something good that is hard to do. And we can see that if we think of the lives of the saints. Saint Francis, you know, went out and kissed a leper. Now, why did he do that? In a way, it looks kind of foolish. From the viewpoint of human reason, it was kind of foolish because he could have got leprosy, or at least he thought he could have got leprosy. But he did it because he saw that that leper was going to be with him in, with God for all eternity, that the leper was his brother, that is, the leper was discouraged, the leper was despairing. He needed to have a sign of love, the love that God really has for us. Francis would never have known that by reason. It was his faith that led him to do this thing which seems to the rest of us at first sight rash and foolish. There are many things in the lives of the saints that show they had a more profound understanding of what life is all about than we have from reason. That's why when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there are many things in it which seem very unreal, too idealistic. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What sense is there in that? All that happens to you if you turn the other cheek is that you get hit on both cheeks. But Jesus is trying to point out to us in those startling statements, which, by the way, should not be taken absolutely literally. We have to see that they are intended to make a special point. And the point is that the Christian life is something extraordinary. It's something more than we would have ever imagined simply by using reason. That is why then we have to turn to the scriptures if we are going to have an adequate guide for our own life. We need ethics. We need everything that psychology and sociology, medicine, economics can tell us about what is helpful and hurtful for ourselves and for society. We need all of that. And it would be wrong to try to base our morality exclusively on the scriptures and to pay no attention to the growth of modern knowledge. We need to use everything we know. But in order to have that perspective, which really shows us what life is all about, what its real meaning is, and to be able to make decisions sometimes in very difficult circumstances, we need a deeper insight that can ever be given us by ethics, by philosophy, by psychology, by medicine. We need the Word of God.
we need Jesus himself as our example, and we need his teaching, and we need the teaching of St. Paul and the other great saints who truly understood the mind of Christ because they live the way of Christ. So that's the reason that the answer, I believe, to this second difficulty. It's true there's a great overlapping between what everybody sees to be right and wrong and what is to be found in other religions, but there is something specific about Christian morality. Now, in saying that, I want to add one other point. It may be that what we find in other religions is something more than merely what was figured out by human reason, something more than the natural law. Remember that the Holy Spirit is at work everywhere in the world. That Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Christ. When the Holy Spirit guides someone, it is Christ who is guiding them. And so it may very well be, we should be open to this, that among the Buddhists, among the Muslims, certainly among the Jews, among other religions, there are people who have been guided by the Holy Spirit not only to see the natural law, but also to reach something of a deeper truth. And so it's not surprising then that there is a certain overlapping between Christian morality and the morality of other religions. There is one God who is trying to draw us all toward him. In the Christian religion, however, in the teachings of Jesus Christ, we have God present to us. Jesus Christ is true man and true God. And as God, his wisdom is divine. And as he said in the scripture passage I just quoted, it is the Son who knows the Father. It is the Son who knows the goal that we are all seeking. What then might be a better approach if it is not true to say, as I've tried to indicate in this lecture, that the historical character of the scripture means that it is all out of date and if it is not true to say that all we find in the scripture are motivation and not specific directions, then how are we going to deal with the scripture? Well, that is what I want to say in the other lectures. I want to try to build up a moral theology in the other lectures. And the outline I'm going to follow in that is that in the second lecture, we will discuss what we can learn from the Old Testament, how to approach the Old Testament in seeking moral guidance. In the third lecture, I want to discuss how the New Testament perfects and modifies and advances and deepens the Old Testament teaching of morality. In the fourth lecture, I want to say how this is developed in the church because the guidance of the Holy Spirit didn't quit with the scriptures. It continues in the church, not with new revelation, but with a deeper understanding of the revelation that was given us in Jesus Christ. And after that historical, those historical lectures, then I want to point out the main features of Christian morality. 
St. Paul tells us in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians that the greatest thing in our life is love. But he also says, love goes with faith and hope. There can't be Christian love that's not based on faith. And there can't be Christian love that is not full of hope. Faith, hope, and love are the climax of the Christian life. By them, we have direct contact with God. You know, it's an amazing thing, and I wonder if how many of us realize this, that the great spiritual writers like St. John of the Cross tell us that when we perform an act of faith or an act of hope in God or an act of love, we are in direct contact with God. God is no longer remote. God is as close to us as any two persons can be. God is not only close to us, he's inside us, he dwells in us. And even in heaven, we will never be closer to God than when we make a sincere act of faith, hope, and love. Even in heaven, we cannot get any closer to God than we are here on earth when we make those three acts. Now, of course, in this life, we don't see God, we don't touch him, we don't hear him directly, but we are that close. In fact, I think we could say we do touch him. We don't feel that touch, but we do touch God when we say, I believe, I trust, I hope in you, God, I love you above all things. God, I love my neighbor for your sake. When we perform the acts of faith, hope, and charity, we are as close to God as is possible. We are as near God as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is near the Father and the Holy Spirit. It says in the first letter of St. John that he wishes for us that fellowship which is between the Father and the Son. And he is wishing for us that we believe God, hope in God, love God. So that's the climax of the Christian life. And so my fifth, sixth, and seventh lectures will be on how the scriptures talk about faith, hope, and charity. The final lecture will try to bring this down to our present situation today. I want to read to you another passage of Scripture which seems to me very beautiful and which also tells us this same thing. It's from what is probably the last book written in the New Testament, although it's not last actually in the Bible the second epistle of St. Peter. And it reads this way. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with devotion, devotion with mutual affection, mutual affection with love.
If these are yours and increase in abundance, they will keep you from being idle or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who lacks them is blind and short-sighted, forgetful of the cleansing of his past sins. That's from the first chapter of the second epistle of St. Peter, verses 5 to 8. That says to us that the Christian life is not just a series of decisions, it's not just a series of particular actions, it's also the building up of our character. We become what we do. Every time you perform an action, you are in a sense creating your future self. You're molding your character and determining the way you will probably act in the future. That's one of the great importances of not acting wrongly, is because when we act wrongly, we begin a process of self-destruction. Sin is a tearing down of our personality, a tearing down of our character, a making it likely that in the future we're going to go the wrong way. And so Christian morality is a morality of virtue. A virtue means the habit or skill or ability to act rightly. You know, when you study to play the piano or to play golf, in both cases, you start out very awkwardly. You don't do it very well, if you do it at all. You stumble, you make the wrong moves. Gradually, you eliminate the wrong moves and you learn to do the right thing. But even then, you do it rather mechanically. It, it lacks grace. You can't get it all together. But finally, if you really learn to play the piano, if you really learn to play golf, you come to do it gracefully, beautifully. It's like it was second nature to you. You love to do it. And people like to hear the music and they like to see you play. It's a pleasure to see a good golfer at work. That's what we mean by a virtue. A virtue is this capacity to do something that is right and to do it well, to do it so that it comes naturally, to do it even in difficult situations, to do it really without thinking twice, spontaneously. That's what we see in the saints. When St. Francis kissed the leper, he didn't stop and think about that a lot. He acted spontaneously because that was the kind of person he was. He had become love itself, compassion itself. Our Lord Jesus Christ was that. He doesn't think about how to do good. He just is good. It comes out naturally. And one of his first miracles is to heal a leper spontaneously. That is what we're aiming at in the Christian life. We're aiming at not just avoiding sin or doing this or that right and necessary thing. We're aiming at acquiring a character which is Christ-like. We can't do that if we don't know the Bible because the Bible tells us 
what Jesus was like. We have to see him in our mind's eye. We have to be able to feel and think the way he did. It has to be built into our character. Today there's a lot of talk about what is called virtue theory in ethics. This is something that was very much emphasized in the Middle Ages, but people for a long time didn't talk much about it. They talked about laws and rules but, and acts and decisions, but they didn't talk much about building character. But now we see that that has to be central in our teaching of morals, the building of Christ-like character. This will not be attained just by our own effort. To live like Christ requires the grace of God above everything else. Only with the grace of God is it possible to be Christ-like. The grace of God comes to us from the Holy Spirit. And so only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we become truly Christian. And the Holy Spirit and Christ himself comes to us through the sacraments. So in talking about the Christian life, we mustn't forget the sacraments. That is something that we can point to that is specifically Christian. Our responsibility to use the sacraments. No one can doubt that that is peculiar and special to the Christian church. And of all these sacraments, the most essential one is the Eucharist, where we meet Christ himself. So if we want to know what the Bible tells us about the Christian life, we must turn to Christ present in the Eucharist as he's taught in the scriptures. The Eucharist and the scriptures are our guide to the good life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.